Chapter Twenty Nine of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine. The faint merged in a sleep, and when Amy came to her senses again, the pale dawn had broken over the gigantic scrap heap that lay all across Blois Row and part of the carriage maker's shed adjoining. No one had noticed her or gathered her up as a victim. She had simply fallen out of the band of salvage people at one period of the night, and an angle of the smashed carriage shed had protected her from the eyes of her exhausted fellow workers. She now raised herself, waking with nurse-like promptitude, and stared out beyond the gates of the yard into the encumbered roadway. She realized that the blaze had been got under, there was probably nothing of human consistency left buried in the uniform heap of rubbish, whence, as her vision grew stronger, she observed furtive little blue twists of flame peering timidly. They were not dangerous, only they were uncanny enough as a reminder of the tough fight that had been fought with their big brother, the fire, when it was stronger. That good servant which had been master for four hours at least was cowed and assuaged, very soon sightseers would be coming in from the country round to view the scene of the great inexplicable accident. But indeed there was nothing to see or excite oneself over now but a dreary ruin, a handsome funeral cairn at which a few jagged spikes and derelict fragments reared themselves up and maintained themselves a while, until they too fell away, weakly, bit by bit, and the dead level of the vast burial mound was reached. A heap of grey ashes under a grey sky was all that the ghoulish crowds would see. It was the ultimate residue of a fair, clever toy of man's making, an ambulant hive of human activities that Amy's bugbear, the crowned caprice, had doomed and dealt with after its manner. The girl passed her stained, grimed hands over her face mechanically and over her body. She was whole. Yet her limbs the clothes that covered them, all the insignia expressive of her existence on this planet, seemed hardly to belong to the naked, deplorable soul that had spent a night, as it were, on Mars, or some other orb called Hell. She remembered a white, dead baby lying on the bank, curved sideways, like the kernel of a walnut, with its stiff hands up to its face, a baby that had belonged to Tellus, our quiet, domestic earth, on which she herself lived, and had once gone gaily about her daily business, nurse-tending, account-keeping, not knowing that there were other worlds where you wrestled all night with flaming fire, and embattled iron, and heard the shrieks of souls in torment. Susan's baby, she supposed? She must go and break it to the porter's wife. She half rose. Her temples rattled, yet she was not sure she had a headache worse. She looked round her, deprecating horror. She expected to see again the sights that had been laid on her eyeballs before she lay down. Their sockets smarted with the effects of smoke. They had furious red rims like those of a chimney-sweep. She was no beauty. The scene was not the same, for the evil shapes of the night's bedevilment that she had thought to have looked on again, those dark saturnine masses, barriers, piles and heaps, streaked and blotched with red, whence there burst continually pillars of cloud with a marrow of flame. 
for the huddled white lights of rescue wandering hither and thither, bobbing about in unison with the jerky movements of the bearers, there was substituted the fainter image, founded on the same lines, but dimmed now, and fused in lifelong sorrow and regret. The colour of blood, the clear translucence of fire, had gone out of the picture. There was now the smoked pearl tones of mourning, the dullness and opacity of despair. She grew to distinguish movement among the mass. Men were to be seen here and there, grey too in shade like the rest, humble, unillumined camp followers, prying and searching and grubbing about the wreck, the scattered bones and accoutrements of a battlefield. The splendid, helmeted, blood-stained warriors she had fought beside were gone. Another moment, and all the cocks of the district crowed out the end of the dreadful dream. That it had not been a dream, her torn skirt and bleeding hands testified. They showed the validity of her efforts to help to save the reality of the horrid nightmare. And something else, something she had managed to disinter from the wreckage all by herself, stood beside Amy for a sign. This was a large glass bowl full of goldfish that somehow or other, when so many a higher organism had been scorched, pressed, and terrified out of life, had managed to survive. The bowl happened to have been safely banked up in the debris of the flooring of one of the carriages, and thus protected. The glass was unbroken. The water was spilt or dried up, but the fish were languidly alive. Why should they be let die? Amy had nothing else to do, so she rose stiffly, for her bones ached, and her temples throbbed when she moved, and putting her arms round the big bowl, sought a house where charitable people would afford her sustenance for these humble survivors in their degree. A number, like a shuttlecock, banged and flung itself hither and thither in her empty mind-place. It was the last precise fact she had taken in before the shock, that is to say, the number of the porter's cottage under the railway bridge, number nine, Blois Row. The day had come, the light was growing full, the sky, callous, hung low with peaceful mackerel clouds, making it seem very near. Not near enough to save. She could perfectly see the numbers on the doors as she walked along the tiny row, lugging her preposterous bowl of dying, panting goldfish. She found number nine. She had by now forgotten that it was Susan's home, Susan whom she had been kind to when she was a kitchen maid at Swarland, but she counted on the nameless people of the house, out of pure humanity, giving her some water for the fish. The house was still standing. It looked all right. The blinds were all up. She rang boldly. The porter's wife's baby was not dead then? Whose baby, then, was it that she had seen lying on the muddy bank, its hands upraised and clasped, its eyes closed? Someone came to the door, not Susan, someone she did not know. That someone thought she wanted the water for herself to drink, and brought it kindly, and a piece of bread and butter with it, but did not ask her in, giving the reason for her inhospitality. There was a lady already there, who had been in the accident. She was unconscious. Her husband had brought her in a while back, but she did not know him. She knew nobody. The doctor was with her. She was not expected to recover. 
the back of her head, a blow something like that. But she was bound to die. She had a jug in her hand and passed on. She was to get the milk for Susan's baby. What? Die tidily in a bed? No groans, no flames, no heavy iron girders pressing out the prostrate, prisoned life. Not a hideous, gaping wound, but a nice, neat, fair and square blow on the head. After what Amy had seen that night, she had no pity left for the dying lady. Mere death was nothing. We must all die. But heavenly fate to die whole and sound and white, instead of bleeding and blackened. Would not the relations of those now still and stark, lying awaiting their faint and hesitating recognition in a mortuary, have coveted for their dead ones the blessed alternative granted to the unknown woman inside? She sat down on the end of the stone coping that supported the railing of the tiny garden. There was only just room to sit. The strong bushes at the back crept through the railings and pushed her off. She nursed her bowl of reviving goldfish and gazed stupidly down on some dark stains on the sleeve of her jacket. The door of the house opened, and one of the doctors, she recognized him, for she had been his aide-de-camp, came out, carrying his professional bag. He did not seem particularly upset, only busy. He was used to death, too. Perhaps his lucky patient had succumbed gently, without worrying. Perhaps he also, a few hours before, had happened to see what Amy had seen, the dead baby lying on the dank earth of the bank near its dead mother. And even though he had not shared that vision, the case-hardened expert Amy had worked with all through the long night of horror could easily get over the sight of a woman dying comfortably in her bed. "'Are you hurt?' he asked, stopping in front of her. "'No.' "'Waiting for someone? Are you a relation of Mrs. Dan's?' He did not recognize the girl, who had torn up her clothes to make him the bandages he had asked her for in a hurry. "'Yes,' Amy answered his question. "'You can go in. She's still unconscious. I fear it's a hopeless case. No pain, though.' He lifted his hat and was gone without waiting to listen to Amy's disclaimer of any desire to go in. Why should she want to go in, indeed? She had seen enough. All she wanted was air, and she was getting it. She sat on, drooping, stooping more and more over the bowl with its living, bustling tenants. The sun was up, but he did not shine. The day was neutral, non-committal, very like any other northern autumn day but nobody about here at least seemed to be going off to work. She had forgotten it was Sunday, and thought of this place as a circle of Dante's Inferno, a veritable city of the dead. A clock struck nine, or was it ten? She could not count today. She still sat on, and the sun began to sneak out. The door of the cottage behind her opened again, and this time it was Jeremy Dand who issued hastily, nearly falling over his child's governess. His eyes blinked. He looked heavy and hideous. He had been sitting in the dark. He looked down at her, as Mrs. Bowman would have said she was nothing to look at. But she certainly achieved pathos, sitting there, patient, grimed, blackened, her eyes bloodshot, her hair matted on her forehead, 
the suggestive dullness of the prevailing hue of her, broken only by the orange flash of the goldfish across her knee. His brow furrowed for a moment, as she had sometimes seen it do, when doing a complicated business calculation. Then it cleared again. "'Up,' he said, placing his hands under her armpits to raise her. There was no spring in her. She was inert. "'It's a shame to scold you,' he said. "'But you are a very naughty girl. I told you to go straight home, and instead of that you have been knocking about the whole night. Why didn't you obey me?' You don't seem able to take in a scolding, I see. He raised her chin and looked keenly into the darkened face, where, in the reddened eye sockets, the eyes gleamed like coals. You have fever? Is everyone dead? she asked, starting up. Pretty nearly. Don't talk. Come with me. End of chapter 29 Read by Lisa Reichert